I'm Jensen Beeler. And I'm Quentin Wilson. And together we are the Two Enthusiast Podcast. The Two Enthusiast Podcast. The noisiest motorcycle podcast. Why are you saying it's the noisiest? We're at least 92 decibels or more, Quentin. Oh, yeah? At least. Huh. I, sometimes I'm 97. Sometimes I'm 105. <laughs> you know, it just depends on the day. Yeah. And the humidity. Because that, that changes things. <laughs> it does. Absolutely. Yeah. It's been, uh, it's been quite the thing lately. Oh, in my world. Uh, really? Yeah. I'll tell you before you get into it, because yours is motorcycle specific, mine's truck specific. I truck, downloaded trucks, trucking trucks. Yeah. I downloaded an app, you know, whatever app you can to, to gauge decibels because I bought a bunch of stuff for my 1984 F-150 that is true blue. Yeah, true, old blue, old blue. True, true blue too. I like I, that I like true blue. because I like Madonna and yeah, the Madonna true blue. I'll have to figure that out. Um, Maybe the truck has a whole new face to me. Like that would actually just make it. Yeah. Hmm. Anyway, so I'm putting a bunch of shit in it because it was ordered with very minimal interior stuff. The person that that owned it before me, who bought it new, uh, our good friend Postal Mike. Uh, <laughs> Postal Mike. I will say this. This is this is full circle. Postal Mike is one of the better point people to run PIR. Yeah, he is. Which has been a little bit of an issue as of late, yeah. which comes back to the noise thing. Okay, we'll good. Get there. Uh, we'll we get there. wish Postal was around more. We just call him Postal because he was a post postman for a very, very long time. And if, if it came on the news that a postman had gone Postal in the Portland area, that would be my first suspect. <laughs> yeah. So Postal had this thing and it was his, um, it was his hunting rig. And that's why it doesn't have many miles on it. You only use it for specific times and, and going to Eastern Oregon. Well, when, when he was kind of giving me the, the, the lowdown of the truck as I was loading it onto a trailer, cause it had been sitting for 12 years and I needed to, and it needed a complete go through to get it running. He was like, yeah, no carpet. You can't have a carpet when you're a hunting in a hunting rig like that and get a blood everywhere. And you know, all right. He was all, and I'm like, huh, what a practical Bl- blood is incredibly difficult to get out. Of yeah. A carpet and when. when I was like, huh, what an interesting, like I would have never thought of that dynamic. Whereas I'm thinking heat and noise, right? That's why I'd want carpet. Right. So, uh, over owning the truck now and re- driving it for a few months, I realized I do want carpet and I want a headliner. This doesn't have a headliner. So mm. it's loud. It's, it's loud and it's hot. Now that it, the temperature's gone, you up. sound a little fancy. So I have, I am totally fancy. It's funny to go from an, a Mercedes E350 to you know a Ford F150, right? I you know I span at least I can span, and I'm comfortable with this thing. I'm just like, what what what, what will matter? So I buy the decibel meter, and I did some highway decibels in the truck at different speeds with windows down and windows up. You, you bought the app, or you bought an just actual app, decibel meter? Just app, okay. just app. So it, I, who knows? It might not be that great, but at least it kind of gives me a, a, a little bit. And it tests out enough to where it seems functional, right? So whatever, whoever wrote the app obviously did some sort of algorithming that was good enough. Okay. Then I took in my, um, my uh, thermometer, my you know, infrared thermometer to oh, the gun. Yeah. The gun yeah. to gauge heat. So I'm going to do the before and after I already did the before of how hot and how loud the truck is. I'm like, I just wanted to see, does it change the price of bread to put in a headliner and floor at all? Cause I had just put in a new uh, window 
you know, all the stri- stripping, all the rubber. I just redid all that because it was all dry, rotten, and cracked. And that made a notable f- effect on the na- on the noise, right? So then now I have at least a bit more of an analog to where I can get it all together. Anyway, so that's why I'm all about <laughs> decibels lately. What about you? What's going on with decibels? Are you, like, screaming too loud while you're in the mid-coitus or something? You got neighbors complaining? <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Sure. That wasn't where I was going to go with it. Now that you've you've outed me on the podcast, I just like having a good time, Quentin. You know, I just like I just like getting a little rowdy. (laughs) Nothing wrong with that. No, there isn't. Absolutely, that's what God gave you vocal cords for. (laughs) So, um, no, but it's been interesting. It's been an interesting couple. I've been doing a lot of track days. We'll get to that, I think, in a little bit, but. Noise at the track has been a, a yeah. very much an issue. Between at the a Laguna Seca, which has always been it's an always issue. Been an issue. Yeah. And then PIR, which has been a bit more stringent lately. They've been getting a little bit more of the crackdown, getting more serious about it. And dealing with bikes and, and Euro 5 has also been something that's been on my mind. And noise isn't as big of an issue with Euro 5, but it is. Uh, Euro 5 gets motorcycles pretty gosh darn close to uh car level of things that's amazing so it's gonna be a big undertaking that first wave of that hits in 2020 and um there's some you know it'll probably take well how do i explain this my understanding with euro 5 is that it has two waves of implementation but then you get waivers on top of that so the first wave will come for 2020 New bikes, 2021 for current bikes. It's 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 a little complicated, but it's right if you around, hit the first right wave, the then you're a waiver. I see what you did there. <laughs> that's good. That's good. That's that's well done. You're you earn your paycheck around here. <laughs> I don't want I don't want people to to misunderstand. Quinn <laughs> Quentin earns his paycheck. Oh, wait, sorry, but um, I had a Tesla drive by me the other day. I think it was the only time I've ever been around a Tesla when there was no other vehicle around. And I live on this very loud, big street in, in Portland called Lombard, four lanes. And there's a lot of people hauling ass all the time. And I was out picking up a piece of trash because you can imagine living off a main street like that. You get stuff flying in your in your yard. And for some reason, it was just this Tesla. It was in between stoplights or something and it went by. And I made a note of how, you know, you know, zingy the motor sound is but also how loud the tire sound was. Yeah. I was like, that's amazing how loud that is relative to the, the zzz of the car, but that both were actually quite loud. We talked about it in the last show, Quentin, when I was in Milan with Pirelli and we were in that yeah, Anacoa sure, chamber. Sure, That's one of the things that, that they're really looking at a lot and they're getting a lot of pressure from OEMs to make quieter tires. And so they're making a lot of innovations on car tires and yeah. passenger car tires to to reduce the noise because the cars are getting so quiet and with electrics coming on board and hybrids you know road noise or rolling noise really is a huge part of it and so like to see them trying different compounds different pressures different constructions they're putting like foam blocks inside the tires now too Mm -hmm. to help absorb some of that sound or to, to decrease certain resonance frequencies really interesting stuff so i mean that is kind of where we're headed with things. Sure. I just poached a bunch of trails because there's a, or a friend of mine, this person I this know. This person you know, this <laughs> friend of a friend. <laughs> went out to the, uh, I'll say the Oregon forest. Uh, and I was like, well, I'm not, I shouldn't be riding right now because there's a Your fire. Your friend shouldn't be. 
Yeah, that's right. I shouldn't be. My friend shouldn't be. Nobody should be. <laughs> you fucked us up, Royal. <laughs> you're going to jail, sir. Uh, uh, and uh, you're you're supposed to stick to just pay uh, the roads, not get off trail, got or onto the trails. So I was like, ah, I probably shouldn't do this. But quiet dirt bikes, right? And it, I I was like, if there's anything that that helps, it is. That the fact that you can just kind of zip, zip, zip through the woods and you're not, we, we were, we were parked and there were plenty of other people out there doing the same thing. You could hear the four strokes for, you know, like a mile in the woods. And this is with woods. This is with trees, but it's echoing off of everything. And it's an, it's an interesting thing. And I think it's a big dynamic, uh, of course, in the motorcycle realm. But yeah. Another thing about tires relative to that though. And I probably said it on the podcast before. It's the strangest thing to be riding a bike where the, the sound of the tire makes you think it's flat because it's the normally the sound a tire makes when you have an engine and it's flat. It has this weird rubber. I, and I, I don't know how to I can't replicate the sound. I can't tell you what it is, but it's like rubber gripping in a weird way. Yeah, it's it's the same sound that a wet hippopotamus makes <laughs> sliding down a stripper pole. <laughs> I, I, if you've never heard that's it, you wouldn't one, yeah, know, right? but that's what that sounds like. <laughs> Coda, you do that sound. All right. So anyway, that's uh, that's a weird thing because then you you will stop. And I've done it so many times. Even to this day, I'll still do it. Stop. Look at my rear tire. That's the way it goes. So it's it's interesting when you don't have to deal with engine noise or if you deal with less of it. What, what type of stuff that you hear and experience, oh, yeah. right? I think that's a huge part of the, of the electric motorcycle riding experience. And people talk a lot about like, oh, I want that V-twin noise or I want that, the sound of the engine. And you're like, mm, I really like the, the sound of the wind rushing off my helmet and off the bike and listening to the tires and, and yeah. being able to experience some things that aren't there. It's, it's not the same, yeah, sure. but it's not any worse. No, and I think the the real thing with that is to is asses and seats. You know, have someone go yeah. ride it and experience it, and they'll be like, "Oh, okay, yeah." I mean, I do like, and I, I see this as myself too. I do like the sound of a big pulsating V twin that's loud and burly, and or like a screaming inline four or whatever it happens to be. I do like that sound, but I don't need to have it to to enjoy the experience. It's just it's different. Yeah. yeah. Um. All right, little rabbit, rabbit hole there. That was good. Yeah, sure. Uh, what have you been up to, Quentin? Tell me what you've been riding because you were out doing some things this weekend. Um, I was. Uh, I raced what used to be called Dirtquake, but is now called the Wild One because I guess some entity in Europe bought the uh, rights yeah. to Dirtquake. ITV Four, which does all the great uh, Isle of Man TT ah, okay. productions and stuff, or at least they are the ones that show it. I think it's North Studios does the actual production. That's a side. Whatever it is, it's Euro. Anyway, they they bought the rights to it, and then right. they, I guess, they couldn't come to some balance with having it here in the states. Even though it makes sense if you're going to do something awesome like that, that already had a, a over, over the Atlantic vibe to it. Yeah, I wonder. I think the ownership structure is just a little different there because it was Sideburn Magazine that kind of yeah. started Dirtquake and had all the rights to it. But maybe what the deal was here was. Cyburn in conjunction with CC and there is a yeah, dis- sure. different ownership structure and maybe CC's got a, a voice in it. And I don't know. I who, really who don't knows? know. There could be all kinds of politics there. Don't have any idea. doesn't matter. Just know that names change that CC uh, tore from CC 
um, which is if you if you're listening, you don't know what that is. It is kind of a brand that's coming on strong in the uh, a lot in the dirt bike world. They they've partnered with Fox, so they make CC branded gear. But it's a coffee shop that also sold motorcycle parts and then had branded gear that has blown up in the past 10 years. We've talked about it relative to the one moto show. Right. Well, now we have the wild one, which I think is good branding and marketing and toward it and a normally good job. This is what happens. I think it's been going on since 2014. I've raced it twice. I can't. No, you've raced it more than that because mm-hmm. you and I have done it together. Yeah. And then you did it on the Terracorsa. Uh-huh. And then you did it this time. Okay, so three times. I had raced it twice, I should say, before this weekend. Uh, Did it on Terracorsa before. Then you and I went and I was on a Multistrada. So bottom line, it's a half mile. Eh. Yeah. Maybe somewhere between a quarter and a half mile. It's pretty short. But it's a, uh, a outdoor flat track. Yeah. And it's a pretty firm dirt, gets grooved up pretty quick flat track. Uh, and it's about an hour north of Portland in a place called Castle Rock, Washington. Um, and I raced it the first year in the inappropriate street bike class on the Terracorsa, which is a Panigale with that normally uh, we had like the full on TKC 80s on it, but I put these specific, uh, old, old rain tires on it that are quite novelly and it worked really well. And so, uh, I won that race and then the next year, and I think this might have been 15 and 16. I don't remember when you and I did it. I think it was 16, but might have been 15. Man, it all goes by so fast. So the next year, you and I went, did the same thing, put the exact same set of tires on a multi-1200 um, and had a horrible time. Didn't didn't get along with that because multi-1200s really are, I'm not going to say they're useless, but they're really pretty heavy and gnarly. And like their specific case for off-roading is... is The multi-strata 1200 wasn't built for flat track racing? No. All right. But then you get... It's funny when you get on a multi-1100, it was like it was the most perfect machine you could ever out of any street bike that you can make an inappropriate street bike and just plop it it was better than the terracorsa it's got handlebars right so the half the battle is the handlebars other than that it just felt fantastic i mean i guess a hyper maybe the hyper was pretty good just not with novice yeah not with the you had tkc's yeah. on yeah sure yeah, i kind of struggled on that maybe i don't know something about the way this thing worked especially with an air-cooled maybe a older hyper with the air-cooled two valve might be the ultimate so anyway, I took it. I took this as my personal bike. The past two times I'm riding other people's shit. So this time I'm like, well, it's my it's my deal. I can ride it how, however I want to ride it, and um, had a great time with it. it. Was fast immediately, and the I don't know what kind of bikes were there. I was surrounded by all kinds of weird shit from an SV650 to a lot of older Japanese street bikes. Nothing that I can like identify because there were like a lot of universal Japanese motorcycles in the in the pack that looked like they were lighter. They obviously were on the continuum of flat track style. There's a few people that were trying to make bikes that were definitely universal standards. You could make them flat track style pretty quickly. Probably had some 19 inch wheels in there somewhere. I don't know. I wasn't paying attention. Don't care. It's just for fun. I'm not bothered. It was, it just was happenstance. The bike worked well and I was happy and it worked, worked well enough to win the, win the inappropriate street bike class for, for this year. So I was uh, good. I almost got crashed into once and there's a pretty good picture of this person. Uh, I guess I went in deep as in practice. I went in deep trying to feel out. Hey, how far can I break? Well, I can't break that. can't do that. And I went wide. He came underneath me, grabbed a handful of throttle, and then proceeded to really yard sale that. Whatever. Sounds like he was going hard in the paint. He was going hard in the, he was going hard in the rubber, I guess, in the dirt. So, 
it worked out pretty well. Uh, the only weird thing is that we raced in the daytime when mm -hmm. we did it. Yeah. Now <clears throat> it starts at like five thirty or six, and you go like I think I oh, raced. That's good. That means everyone can sober up. Jesus, dude. That's that's why I don't do it. Yeah, I think I, half my when I did it, I think half my starting grid was still drunk. Not not hungover, <laughs> still drunk. Yeah, yeah. I the, I don't think the racers were as bad this year. Uh, the the spectators were, uh, of course, just as as bad as they always have been. So yeah, it was nighttime, and I, I it was cool to race under the lights. I think I don't. Oh, know, that's cool. Yeah, didn't race until like ten or ten thirty, something like that. I don't remember. Oh, that's kind of rad. I like it that was, idea. It was good, and it. You can see quite a bit. Well, I didn't really sweat it. Put on the clear. I had been racing, riding with a dirt bike helmet with the goggles in the day. But then by night, the goggles I had, the only thing I had was dark. So I just put on a on the AGV with a clear shield and worked great. So yeah, good time. Um, it's a wild, it's a wild one. All right. It's a wild environment. If you, if there, that is definitely something worth going to. I wouldn't plan on being like, I want to go to this every year, mm, but I've been three yeah. years now. Um, Last year, Jet and I went out there thinking that maybe we'd be able to catch the last of the races and we didn't get out there until late. Turned out we got there and it was like halftime show. We didn't understand that. We thought it was done and they were celebrating on track. No, it was just the Mexican wrestling that they were doing on track at the time. So we left and went camping, <laughs> right? We didn't even watch the rest. And we you didn't watch the Mexican wrestling? No, we, were, no. Well, we didn't know. We just thought it was a, it was a celebration because everybody was in the infield. We thought sure. it was like, oh, well, it's all over and the race happened. So we get there and we left anyway. So um, I've tried to go four years, but this this was the third. Yep, I would go again. I've just got to pick a different bike. I got to pick something more inappropriate. So any listeners that have a good idea of a cheap machine that I could use uh, for inappropriate street bike class at a flat track. I think I think we call up Honda. We get ourselves a Goldwing. We do the first. We'd be the first ones to do it two up. That would be interesting. Oof, man. And then like just comes to mind water balloons. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Uh, the <laughs> <laughs> right you laugh but that's oh we never we never followed through on the uh uh the sprint or the box uh, gosh soap soapbox derby oh gonna, so many ideas and i know and it's that's like a month away apparently well I, I did some more research on it apparently it's like a three-year waiting list to get oh on as, as an entry well then maybe we should just start now and start now, if we then happen to get in we get in if i still live here in three years yeah right well <laughs> you know, we have to fly you in we'll be like well, the reason I, that triggered my head is because the one thing that's legal other than the vehicle and the people are water balloons, I think. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's two, there's two different classes, but ah, yeah. Okay. One's a silly class and one's a serious class. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> All right. So good times with that. And then uh, went uh, for a quick quick ride uh, out in the coast range on dirt bikes. And that was that. So yeah, it's, it's been crazy hot here. It uh, That was the reason to get to the coast. It yeah. was 101 here. It was 77 out of the coast. It was beautiful. I was talking to some people from LA. They were saying it was like 120 something, like in Burbank and all that. Yeah. Get out of here. Yeah. Gross. West Coast has been in fuego it's lately. It's on fire. Yeah. Um, what about you? What have I been doing? I did a lot of track days. I've just been, just been tracking it up. Yeah. Uh, went to the Ridge finally. Finally. I've so this in... was your first time at the Ridge. <laughs> yeah. Right. Which I was lived... really strange to think about, but yeah, we never got to. I've been in Oregon for quite some time now. And, and it's one of the best, I would say right now it's the best track in the Northwest from here to like Miller Motorsports Park is probably the, probably the best track. Right? I don't know. I haven't, I haven't 
I've, I've been very bad in my sampling of uh, Pacific Northwest tracks. Oh, you haven't done Seattle haven't, International. I haven't done Seattle. haven't done ORP yet. Oh, you've done ORP. No, I have not. I thought you did it on the CIS. No, I did PIR on the CIS. Oh, fuck. All right. Wow. wow. That was my first track day at PIR was on the CIS. Huh. On the electric. I guess I thought it was at ORP. And on a Panigale. Yeah, ORP is great. It, it's just out there. Yeah, it's just a ways. Well, is it though? No, it's only two, three hours. Two hours. Yeah, and that's the same with the ridge where it's only two and a half hours away. Everyone can be, oh, it's so far away. Listen. Yeah. Listen. Yeah. If the track is within, and if you can drive to the track the day of and drive back the day of, then it's not too. Far. It's not that far. Yeah. Um, Miller so, is far. It's twelve Miller hours. Miller is far. Yeah, that's a that's a hoof. The Bay Area tracks, te- the Thunder Hill. That's if, ten hours. If away. you yeah, well, if you live in San Francisco. Even getting to Sears Point is still going to take you an hour, hour and a half because of traffic. Easily. Laguna is going to be two, three hours. Thunder Hill is going to be two, three hours. Going down south is going to be way more. Going to Miller is like nine. So, yeah, settle down with yourselves. When I live, when I live back east, same thing. Every track was two, three hours away. Yeah. Settle, settle down, Portland. Sure. We get spoiled because we have a track in our backyard. In the, right there. Yeah. And and almost literally in my backyard, hence this noise thing. Right. So I can comment on that as well right. when we do dive a little bit into that. Get into it. Yeah. So yeah, I got to go to the Ridge. Cool facility. Got to hang out with uh, our buddies, Jason Pridbor, Michael Gilbert. Who is Michael Gil- You've Gilbert? You've met Michael Gilbert. I, I don't know. Who, who, who is Moto he? America racer. Sport Used to do some stories for Sport Rider. Was a test editor for them. Oh my gosh. No, I don't know that person. Oh. Yeah, Michael Red, Red Gilbert. Dude. Okay. Yeah. Um, his current uh, race bike livery kind of makes him look like a Smurf. He's like mm. the fastest Smurf in Moto America. Hmm. You so know, he's a current Moto America racer? Yeah. What kind of bike does he ride? R6, I believe. Okay. I think Got he's it. in Supersport. All right. I'd have to double check So it. you were doing a, uh, w- what track day? Star School? No, I did, uh, it was with uh, Moto Vixens, but... Jason Printer was doing a piggyback uh, with yeah. his one-on-one training with it as well. Cool. And so, yeah, it was a it was a good day out. Uh, a little rain, had a little rain, but not too bad. I had a college buddy of mine come up and ride the track with me on what bike? He had a RSV4. Oh, cool. Yeah. And you were on? I took the Street Fighter. Yeah. Uh, R1 was was not quite ready, and have yeah. you still? It's still not quite ready. It's still not quite. It ready. hasn't been quite ready for four years. I mean. It's right there. Yeah. It's right on the cusp. Uh-huh. I'd actually, you know, it's, it's funny you mentioned that because I'd actually had talked to a buddy about coming in and, you know, changing all the fluids and sure. doing all the valves and all that. And they ended up going to Hawaii and getting engaged instead of doing that for oh, me. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess that was the right decision. Yeah. She said yes. Yeah. So, hmm. good luck with that. Yeah. For eternity. Yeah. We'll, we'll remember that down the road. Yeah. That, <laughs> that, that's sacrilege to motorcycling. <laughs> chuckles <laughs> all right so, so you took so, yeah. the street fighter because that's the took thing the street you fighter. had yeah and then you had done pir on it on on a whim or just because you whatever wasn't but well, didn't you do that first didn't you no, go no, no pir was second it was okay yeah. Sorry so you, the just, ridge. you were just like screw it i'm gonna take the street fighter it's ready to go it, it had tires mounted it, it was in good shape yeah easy peasy. and keep in mind i had a street fighter 1098 that i rode for literally four thousand miles of all track i mean i i think i had 100 maybe 200 miles of street compared to the thousands of miles of of track duty on it and i loved it i enjoyed it and i i coached on that because it was so easy to leave a mirror on it 
and to be to just get upright and be comfortable when you're doing like a C group lead out or a small a slow group lead out. But then when I wanted to haul ass and have fun, I could. So I I love that bike for track day duty. You and I need to sit down and maybe talk suspension and chassis setup because that's one of the things with that bike that I've always struggled with on the track. I love it as a street bike. I always struggle with it on the track because I never feel like I get the front end feel that I'm looking for. Oh, you for. never do. Yeah, it doesn't It always happen. sketches me out. And that was one of the things I was actually having a lot of trouble with at the Ridge was just getting comfortable and confident in that bike because I've never had that. Um, and I don't I don't think I, I, I don't think I ever really got there. I came back and did the PIR track day on it as well and I felt a little bit better then. But man, it takes me a really long time to just trust that that front end is going to do what I want it to do. I rode, I rode Pirellis and Dunlops on that thing. 35 mil of sag with a rider on it. Whatever as ship stock suspension settings. Yeah. I, I, I think I changed the oil and went too light one time. So it made it a little bit squishy. I still rode it. I didn't have a problem. The rear, you do have to r- raise the ride height. Yeah. And I've done that. Yeah. And I'm uh, almost thinking I might. I probably tweaked with the rear shock settings, but not the front. The front always felt okay, but I mean, it's a, it's raked out. Like it does. It's, that's it's, the thing. Uh, the best thing I did was put magnesium wheels on it. Huh. Straight up. Huh. Right. So that, that was the thing. Or, or not even magnesium. They were the seven spoke forge stock, aluminum. the forged aluminum made a huge difference. Did that during a track day at Laguna Seca one time. It was awesome. Cause I, I did half the day without them, then oh. half the day with them. And it was like, Oh, that is a, an unreal. I, I know this. I have all the kinds of wheels for all kinds of bikes, but it was really cool to do it, especially on a big, heavy street bike with big, heavy cast wheels. Yeah. That's like, that immediately changed everything that made it all better. That's everything. been something I was looking at. Um, I was looking at the new, uh, well, not they're not new, but the OZ Racing. Sure. They've got a good, nice four shoulder. and five wheel. spoke look great. Yeah. Also, the full system on that bike. Do you have that on yours? It's just a slip on. Yeah. The full system makes it so much more rideable. It made it just that at the time it was bitching. And so, and, oh, and a quick shifter. I put a quick shifter. Need a quick on shifter. It. it fucking helps World's so much. heaviest clutch. Yeah. 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 Sure. So, those are the things. I'm trying to think of anything else. I put bar guards on it just in case I'd crashed after I did crash. I was actually looking at that too. Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. Right. Because if you do even a small tip over, it's very exposed. So. I've got an extra set with integrated signals and everything. There I'm, you go. Put it on if you're going to do more track day duty. Well, I've been thinking about it. I've been thinking about it because I, I do enjoy that bike. It's a lot of fun. It's it's the pretty bike in the garage, though. So that might be part of it, too, is this, this idea of I really don't want to crash this bike because it's yeah, the pretty bike. Yeah, but it's bike. got 25,000 miles on it, right? Yeah, but it's still the pretty bike. Yeah. Well, doesn't. That's why I got the R1. The R1's the bike I don't care yeah, about. Yeah, you're right. It should be. But it's probably not as fun. Big twin, blah. <laughs> Comfortable. I guess uh, that R1 is probably pretty comfortable. I like that R1. It splays you out like five feet. Your legs have... Well, that's the thing. That's one of the things that I think also throws me off. And that was one of the things I was working with with Michael Gilbert a bit because he, he came out on a couple sessions and followed me around and gave me some tips. One of the things that throws me off with the Street Fighter is it's so narrow. Yeah. And the tank is so narrow. And I'm used to being on those super bikes to kind of splay your legs out like you're going to the, the OBGYN. <laughs> you know? It's speculatory. <laughs> <laughs> is that a speculative opinion that you had there? <laughs> but, you know, that that very much is a part of the riding position that I'm used to. So I had to kind of change yeah. my riding position a little bit to get on that bike. Whereas I've been riding skinny stuff for years. I love it. Like I before that. I heard that, you like riding a skinny thing in between your legs. Stop it. But I, I had the 675 Triumph before that and 125s and, and the A48 to race and all that stuff. So skinny is good. I hate these big wide. I am okay with it. But like last year when we did all the 
uh, Superbike Deathmatch stuff, I was way more comfortable on the Ducati than any other one of them, right? Mm-hmm. But I like the fact that the Suzuki got s- slimmer. And the Honda as well were way more slim than I expected them to be. I think they've all had to kind of tighten up a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Cowie was pretty big. Though. Pretty big. Yeah. But it's obviously not a hindrance. It works no. well. You just have to get used to that type of body positioning. So you had this person giving you some tips and tricks. Yeah. Um, and then were you able to immediately sync with those or did you just have to, I mean, how did, no, I you haven't was, had a lot of instruction in, in recent years, right? I'm trying to think the last time I did a thing with Jason was a few years ago. It's before I moved to Oregon. So four years, let's say. So yeah, it's been a little while. I definitely pick up some bad habits from street riding that yeah, I always sure. kind of have to overcome when I'm on the track and that's mostly how I move my body and kind of my order of operations when it comes to corner entry, especially, um, moving my body before I get on the brakes and and doing things like that. And that's one of the things that, that Michael picked up on and it did help a little bit to have my body set to move my ass and my, my hands and my body a little bit before getting onto the brakes. Cause then it wouldn't upset the front end as much. And I get a little bit more confidence. Hmm. But I think, truthfully, I think 75% of it is it's the nut between the ears. You know, just, it's it's just a mental thing. I don't yeah, trust sure. that front end. I was on street tires. It's the pretty bike. We had questionable weather and just, it just kind of gets to you. So it was that idea, the idea, or at least the advice that he gave was like, hey, you know, if you're feeling like you're going slow anyways, that's a good time to start working on some of these other things that aren't bike related. Like, let's work on, you know, order of operations for moving your body. Let's work on, body positioning because those are the things that you want to do when you're going about three quarters pace anyway so you can really think about it so you don't have to think about like where's that threshold getting on the brakes right into the ragged edge we're more like okay now let's worry more about where my shoulders where my head is at where my butt is and and where my feet are placed and things like that am i weighing the pegs or not so it was good from that perspective to have something like hey like if you really feel like you're going slow and and just like give up on it just be like, accept that you're going to be going at a slower pace and work on some stuff. Use that as an opportunity. Don't use it as a hindrance. I think that's good advice. Yeah, sure. You're already there. You're doing the thing. Yeah. Don't let it get you down. You'll exactly. be like, all right, I can, I can make this happen as well, as long as you're comfortable, right? If you're, if you're going slow because you're not comfortable, you got to work on whatever that comfort is. Right. And you're not comfortable with how front end feel. All right. Fair enough. That's something you can work with. You can just be like, okay, I don't have that. I'm not on the racy, sticky, gnarly tires. My brain is not allowing me to do the thing, even though you know you probably could. But that's definitely one of the things about a street fighter or that 1098 street fighter is it's hard to get hot heat in the tire and keep it in the, in the tire. You have to start riding hard immediately and then stay on it because it doesn't, it, it'll shed heat pretty quick because it just doesn't have the same feel that you would be used to. So in that case, you just work on other stuff and you have these handlebars there, big old handlebars, make it like all kinds of room to play with all kinds of stuff. And that's what I liked about it. I I enjoyed that. With that said, I also changed the bars at the time from standard street bike uh, or street fighter bars, which are pretty bent to put, I put monster 1100 bars, which is what they ended up putting on the seven, uh, the uh, A48 street fighter. So a little bit higher up. And that's another thing I was actually, you know, it's funny, like, that's another thing I was thinking about doing to my bike. And that's one of the things I really like between the 1098 and the A48. A48, I think it's the better Street Fighter. It is. It's it's yeah. the engine's a little bit more manageable. The chassis is so much better. There, there's a Goldilocks really got point right. between the two, though. If the motor, the A48 Street Fighter motor is definitely poochy. So <clears throat> I love it. 
I think if I had my A48 race bike motor or maybe a punched out, not not even a thousand cc, nine something, yeah, that would be like this Goldilocks naked bike, which frankly is what I think the KTM uh, 790 Duke is going to be. I think that's gonna it's going to have all of that lighter weight, s- smaller, tighter rider. That'll I, that's what I would hope, and if it does, then I'd be super stoked. Yeah. I'd be curious to so see that's, that. So that's that's kind of why I, I I'm bending towards that as a like hmm I kind of want that. With that said, I still have a Street Fighter A48 in my garage <laughs> that's been <laughs> sitting for five years. So. Got to get that thing together. I man. know, I know. Well, it is what it is. So what I what I've often thought about. Well, would I should I just sell that and buy another 1098? No, there's other motorcycles out there. I should I should be testing other things and and owning other things for a while i don't need to i could i can buy another one later on down the road but you know it's so funny when you're you have this i don't know physical connection mental connection with these bikes and you just know for it, sure right and, and that's so and that's weird. what the 1098 is for me like that was the bike that i bought for myself when i finished my nearly decade-long time in school and I moved back to California and I needed a way to get across the Bay Bridge without sitting in traffic. And I was like, I need a street bike. This was this was my present to myself. This was my reward for for you know putting in all the time and on the education. So it has a lot of sentimental value. It's probably gonna be the only bike in my garage that I really ever hold on to. Yeah, fair enough. That's good. And hopefully you do. And it hasn't fucked up. This is how you and I really not just we might have met elseways. But we got to know each other because of this problem. He would have this problem or what? It would Every 3,000 this- miles, the speedometer stops being accurate. And I don't mean like, oh, hey, it reads like 5% off or three miles an hour. You could literally rev the bike standing still and it would show 100 miles an hour on the speedometer, <laughs> which is great for marketing. Mm-hmm. Not so great when you need a speedometer that works. And we never figured out. We just had to keep replacing the dash. Is that right? It's still kind of going on. Mm-hmm. Um, the last, the AJ was actually the last person to work on it. And that seems to be okay, but we're at that point in time. We're about at that 3,000 mile mark where it should be starting to crop up again. Because oh this is the issue is someone would do something. They would they would fiddle with something and put it on the... I think it was when anytime they hooked it up to a DDA, it kind of just like reset itself. And that was part of the issue where it's like, okay, so now it's been fixed. Well, not really because it keeps coming back. <laughs> so every electrical component on this motorcycle has been replaced at least once if not twice, and in some cases, three times. Yeah. So we're kind of at that magic point now where it should be crocking up. And like, I just noticed the other day on the freeway, I was cruising along and my speedometer's like, you're going 92. And you're like, I'm, I'm not like, There's going. no way. I'm 70 maybe, but I'm in Portland, so probably not because <laughs> the speed limit here is 12. Yeah. I'm like, oh no, that might be the thing. So we'll see. We got a little, we got a little more time on it. We'll see. All right. Well, enough enough Street Fighter talk. Street Fighter talk. So track day talk, though. You were talking about having been in a situation where you were getting taught, but then not long after that, going to Moto Corsa track day, and you were being you were an instructor and or a rider coach or whatever they call control the, rider. Control rider. I think okay. is the preferred nomenclature. So, yeah. Right. So what do you what did you think about that experience? It was really cool. Um, this is your first time to do that ever. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I've taught, I've taught other things. I've taught a lot of other things. I coached um, and taught sailing for quite a long time. I'm, I'm, I don't know how many of our listeners know this, but I'm actually a fairly accomplished, nationally ranked sailor at one point in my life. 
And what were those uh, the boats you used again? Lasers, just race lasers. So it's an Olympic Wh- class, which is a uh, okay Olympic. It's a single tw- person, single person, single sail. It's about twelve feet long. At the time when I raced it, it was the most competitive racing class in sailing. Period. Um, all the great kind of America's Cup guys, they get you know they started out in dinghy boat racing. They race lasers. Dinghy, dinghy. That's what you call it. Is that it's what it dinghy. is? It's, it's a, a dinghy? dinghy. Okay. Yeah. It's not a tender. No, it's a dinghy. Do you know what a tender is? No. You've never heard that? Is it tinder? Is that where you swipe left? <laughs> no, ten, ten, tender, tender, tender. When you're on a yacht and you've got to get to shore, but the yacht obviously can't go to shore because it's too oh, big. Yeah. You get on a little thing, like or a maybe robot. a Zodiac. Yeah. Or they call it a tender. The rich people call them tenders. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So it's that it have a sail, so I wouldn't expect you to know. No, yeah. <sighs> motorboats. Stupid. <laughs> Motorboat's great. They're stupid. <laughs> I love motorboat. <laughs> it's funny because I always thought you were more of an ass man. <laughs> well, it depends on what your motorboat. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> There's a visual. Uh, hold on. I just need a, just need a minute. Just need a visual learner, Quinn. Visual. Well, where I grew up in Texas, the uh, we, we oh, it's lakes and it's all ski boats and... Yeah sailing was never i can't even remember ever seeing i'm sure there are sailboats on lake somerville but it was mostly people with two-stroke suzuki outboards hauling ass and kneeboarding and wakeboarding and shit like that so i don't i don't i've never had much experience with that been on a couple of rad sailboats a couple times in the caribbean but not enough to know anything about it right and i've done a what is it a hobie cat yeah. Or whatever it is where you can catamaran. Be, and I've I've enjoyed that. I've done, you know, the tacking, but barely not really knowing what I'm doing, just going out on like a little bay. Yeah. Hobie yeah. cats are rad. Yeah. It's, it's a little bit different than the, what I was doing, just because the multi hole thing changes a little bit of the dynamic. But yeah, those are fun. All right. So you've taught that. Uh Boy Scout stuff. Did you were you a teacher when you were Yeah, sure. Like just as, in the sense of like like kind of how the Montessori system works where the older kids teach the younger kids. Is that true? I didn't know. I don't yeah, know that's that's the whole Montessori principle. It's I very know nothing activity about it. focused and it's different age groups interacting with each other. Huh. So like younger kids are learning from older kids. I actually like that. That sounds good. Yeah, it's it's, it's not a bad jam. As long like as the kinda, older it kinda, kids kind of gets a, a bum rap sometimes because it's kind of hippy dippy, but it's it's kind of a smart way of doing it. I, don't know. I, I prefer hippy. It's like dippy. the paleo diet the paleo diet of the educational system it's kind of how we used to do things hmm. you know back in the caveman day ah okay fair enough you know can't be that wrong can't be that wrong anyways meanwhile motorcycling um yeah so transition from riding the ridge ridge was rad by the way i hate the last three turns but the ridge was rad you know they've ruined that they ruined it it, it was- is so and it's so so from what I understand, it used to be kind of a corkscrew, like Laguna. Uh-huh. And even then, it wasn't great. It wasn't like the corkscrew. It was fucky, but it wasn't nearly as bad as what they turned no. it into. Now it's for a the cars. 180 degree turn. I, I just started treating that as a supermoto turn. <laughs> now, th- this is another thing. Where, like, if you're having a bad day on a motorcycle, start having a fun day on a motorcycle. Or I was just like, I'm kind of bummed. I'm kind of in my head. I'm not having. I'm not having the feels. So I was like. I'm gonna start ripping some wheelies. I'm gonna start backing it in. I'm gonna start just kind of being a, a jerkery on on a street fighter as one should be. And that was a great space. I was like, this is a great supermoto turn. Bang! You're, you get on the gas. You get hot on the brakes. You're gonna bang down all the way to the first gear. Yeah. And you're not gonna lose any time because it's a bus stop of a turn. Yeah, it's horrible. It's literally get out and push. And it has the potential. I think that's the thing because it goes down a hill. So you're going from the the ridge. 
yeah. down to the base and you're doing it in an S turn, essentially. I'm trying to explain this to the readers, yeah. the listenership. And it, you, you're supposed to go right. No, no left. You, make, you make a sharp left and then you drop right. And then it's a, a quick left, which turns into a kind of a double apex left onto the front straight before. Well, there's a quick kink to the right to get you yeah. onto the front straight. And so it could be great. And on the old track, it, you got used to it and it was great. It was fun. It was very enjoyable because you could really get people going into it on the top and then do your kind of coarse, screwy feeling thing down. But apparently, I've, it, it's been a while since I've done it. And I think I did it once with the new layout. And I was just like, well, that sucks. But what are you going to do? And truthfully, it's so chewed up by the cars. Yeah. There's so many grooves and ruts. The first couple of times I went down, I was like, fuck, I'm losing the front. I was like, no, I'm not my tires just getting stuck in the giant groove in the road <laughs> yeah. and it's sending all this feedback up to the handlebars sure. that feels like the front's going, but really it's just getting stuck in a track like a motocross bike would be gross. And I was just like, I was like, this sucks. It's just, you just literally just get out and push and you just suck it up until you get on the front. But straight. the rest of the lap is so bitching. The rest mm-hmm. of the lap's awesome. Awesome yeah. track. Go do it. It should be under, but great facility. Is it now? Because it was over the last time I was there, there was still nothing there. No, like I mean, they had, a, they had a snack shop there that was open the whole time. They made good burgers. They had a, a classroom, huh. couches okay. and stuff in it. There's not like a bunch of garages or anything, but it's a big open paddock. You can bring your camper. You can camp yeah. there. Uh, it's 15, 20 minutes from Olympia. So if you really want to go get a motel, you can. It's not that far out of the boonies. Sure. It's cool stuff. So anyways transition from that go to pir which is a complete 180 on every single way possible flat nine corners not that challenging in the middle of the city not that challenging at low speed or at track day speed it's the it's one of those things where the last few tenths or the last few seconds in your lap time to get those really makes it challenging at pir uh-huh. but gnarly the rest same of it as is, willow springs yeah but if you're just going out there circulating it's tough to get too stoked on it unless you start hauling ass so but yeah. it's a good place to learn. Great place to learn. And that's, and so, um, yeah, that's where I got to do the, the control riding with, did it with the motocorsa track day. Uh, they'd asked me early in the year to come join them. This is the first date that, uh, things lined up where I was here in, in town for it. I was on the street fighter again. Like you said, great, great bike to do control riding on yeah. Had a much better feel. I think mostly cause I was really more comfortable with that track and sure. the weather was a little bit more agreeable and i don't know just work that it's literally what's between the ears it's totally a psychological also thing let's face me. it there's not that many transition points where the street fighter is going to be compromised by its weird steering there's a couple but not enough to where it really whereas at the ridge that'd fuck with you there holy shit i yeah. can imagine so yeah it's probably part of it yeah i had a really had a really good time um riding around and 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 circulating with with newer riders and, and trying to impart some of the wisdom that I've learned over the years. I've been really fortunate to ride with a lot of um, more knowledgeable and faster people and and learned a so did you bit stop off of them and get like go into the classroom? Did you No, I they had me in the B group. So okay. I wasn't doing the classroom stuff with C with the C group. So motocross is a very structured C group, which I think is great. And I think more track days should do that. Uh, it's actually how it's not quite how it was back east for me with Nesba, but it's pretty close where there's a lot of hands-on control riders, you know, giving advice and showing people lines and, and doing all the things in the C group, a little bit less so in B group and then A group is more or less hands-off. It's, it's open, yeah. Um, and that this is of note. This is something to talk about with track days. We probably have, but 
I think we need to make note of it now is that there are certain track days that are very much just for racers or people that are racing or whatever. And there's a culture that can kind of be fostered by the people that are running the track day and how close they are to the racing community, how close it is to the race itself. Like, so if the club race is going on and it's Friday uh, before the race weekend, usually there's a lot of racers that show up. So if you're a first time track day person, you go to that it feels a bit like being in a meat grinder and you don't want to be part of that. You know what? I, I even did one of those up here, Quentin. Uh, it was right before an Omer day. And, and I had to have a couple conversations with guys like, hey, listen, this is still a track day. Yeah. Uh, I had someone come by me on turn seven, like, you know, basically banging bars. And I was like, I know that you think this is, you know, qualifying for tomorrow and you yeah. can set up and all that. Sure. But this is still a track day. And it's kind of like those expectations. The expectations are different. Yeah. And you have to, you have to know that there's part of it where you, it's like, well, you did sign up for a track day the day before a race weekend, but also they, it's still just a fucking track day. You're not going to win anything. You're, you're about to go race where you're winning a plastic trophy as it is. Sorry. Right. I mean, I don't, oh, well, all the contingency and all, well, you're not making your living racing club racing. I'm sorry. And if you're trying to make your living doing it, doesn't mean you need to put anybody's life at risk so it's all a bit kind of a weird thing but especially for those that were trying to get into it i definitely push them towards basically motorcycle shop based track days or learning based track days right, right? and i was gonna say there's not that many shops that do no, their own track day. that's hard to find but there's definitely different groups i think that have better structures for that and it's finding those groups in your local area that that's really important um I think of N2 Track Days back east. They they took over from Nesba. They have a great program. They're linked up with uh, YCRS. Um, Yamaha Champions Riding School. Yes. Yeah. Which was the um, Freddie Spencer School at one point. Yeah, or, or derivative of it. Right. Because once you get the Ken Hill and the Nicky Natch, yeah. these are all really good people that do a lot. Yeah. The Ridiculous... I don't know much about their track day, but I a couple of the people that are involved I know are extremely good teachers like Shane Turpin, and I think Ken Hill was involved with that first month. There's a few of them out there that are good. There's others that I, you know, they might seem good, but I wouldn't poke them with a, a 10-foot pole, right? And that's actually a story I'm kind of thinking about working on right now with a because I've done track days on four continents now, and I've done a lot of track days with different groups in the U.S., and there's, there's a wide gamut Um in how they're run and how they're organized and what the ethos is or the concentration is for, for their demographic. And it's tough. And some of them, like quite frankly, and this comes back to, I think you and I touched on what was going on at Laguna Seca with that incident with the rider. It hit this, uh, sandbag. Yeah. You know, there, there are definitely organizations out there that, are not running their track day in a professional manner. And I've definitely experienced some of those in the last recent history. And you sit there and you're just like, huh? So like, like I I saw a waiver, Quentin, that literally just said waiver at the top. There was nothing else below it. And then it was just a bunch of, you know, empty spaces for you to write your name, your signature, your email, your phone number, and like, your insurance. t-shirt size, not even your insurance. And you're like, so this waiver, you know, I'm doing the air quotes that you can't see because this is a podcast, isn't a waiver at all. I've, there's nothing that, that waives anything. There's no yeah. agreement to liability. And then there was like a media release. And you're like, the media release actually had more words to it than the waiver did. 
but it didn't even matter because I'd already gotten my tech inspection sticker for my bike and my <laughs> you tech, gone right and out my there. tech sticker for my helmet before I even signed anything and paid them anything. So you're like, so why would I go and we're, do the waiver? Perhaps you were supposed to go out to the beach and catch a wave because it's a, a waiver. You're still on that joke. Huh? Oh, oh, that's full circle, huh? Oh, oh, geez. <laughs> but you, but you, you sit there and you're just kind of like, so I could have just showed up. And and truth be told, the person that teched my bike, my bike wasn't ready for the track. There was nothing about it that was ready for the track. Yeah. So you you approved my bike to go onto the track when it wasn't ready to go on the track. You gave me all the credentials I need to get onto the track before I even signed a waiver and paid you. And no, wait, hold on. The was there a bit of this that had to do with who you are? Nope. No one okay. knew who I was. Just, okay. I'm just out there you doing know a track that, day. That's a legitimate thing. It's fair. It's totally yeah. fair. But it was... Even though that's not right. It's not right. It's something that happens. Though. I understand when that you're I a known am a fast person or a known mechanically sound person, me being one of those people, I get like, I get the kind of glaze over, oh, you'll be fine. I'm like, I've had to do it a couple of times. No, could you go over my bike? I've done it, but I, I, I would like you to go... You know, you never know what you might see that I'm not paying attention to. Well, and here's a great one too, where I finished the track day and I had really bad rear brake feel. And I was like, huh, that's weird. I wonder if I need to braid the brakes or anything. I was like, you know what though? I don't think I ever replaced these pads. I wonder what my pads look like. And I go down and look at the pads. I'm like, those pads are done. They're not down to the metal plate yet. Yeah, but it doesn't take long. But they're not far from it. And I was like, truthfully, I'm like, like, this person that's quote unquote tech my bike probably should have been like, Hey man, your pads are fucking done. At least done. say something. Cause half of it would be just saying, Hey, keep an eye on that. You might want to change right. those after this. That's just a, a, a friendly thing to be All able right. to say, Hey, those work. Those are, those are safe for now, but they could disappear quickly. So, and that's the other side of it. You go to a track day that's running a little bit. Cause I've had that on the, on the reversal. Hey man, just so you know, you're almost at the wear markers on your front brake pads. Probably after this track day, you're wanna, you're going to want to replace those. Oh, cool. Thanks. Yeah. I didn't know. Sure. Appreciate the heads That's up. That's what I'm saying. It's just helpful. So it, it's interesting. It's interesting to see that. And, you know, we get into this whole, without getting back into that that topic of Laguna, but it's like, you know, if we want to keep this sport around, if you want to keep track days affordable and cheap, some of these organizations need to tighten it up. Because, well, there's no certification. They're not, they're not, there's no certification, but there's some of them you sit there and you're just like, your organization, you guys are fast and loose. Your waiver isn't a waiver. You're not inspecting the track. You're you, not inspecting the bikes. You're not. So one of the things when I did the the motor course today, I pulled a guy over because he forgot to zip up his leathers. He had a two piece leather and he forgot to zip around the the uh-huh. waist. Yeah, and I was just like, hey, bud, just just zip it up. But like, by the way, you know, zip it. You've got like four or five inches of skin that is showing right now. And a thing that can twist gnarly, whereas if it was all one whole oh, zipped yeah. up piece, it won't twist as much. Yeah, yeah, there's so many reasons why that's bad. You know, so there's there's got to be a lot of like, you know, who's inspecting your gear, who's doing this, who's doing that, and um, and some of that though important. is there on on them. Absolutely, right? no, and, th- and that and that's what this was. This you know, this guy clearly took his jacket off in between sessions and forgot to. And if he crashed, it, it would have been on him, right? It would have been on him, but you know, that's that's also I think why it's beneficial, especially in those lower groups. To have someone circulating like that's looking out for those kind of things out. like, yes. hey, you know what? You're really blowing turn three. So we either need to slow you down or let's look at a couple lines on how we can yeah, come through turn sure. three and let's try and get you under control because you're heading for a place of, of bad news bears where I'm going to be picking your bike up in the field in a minute or two. That's good to have those kind of people involved. And I think that's, you know, from from my perspective as, as a, a newly anointed control rider, that's, that's what I want. Because at the end of the day, 
my goal is to make sure everyone is having a good time because motorcycles are fun and they should be you should have fun on them yeah and we do it safely, safely so yeah. that you come back and have the fun again because i want to make i want people i want to take and transform motorcycle owners into motorcyclists i want to take you beyond just like i own a motorcycle i went into a track day that was fun for a year or two and then i kind of grew out of it into this like diehard enthusiast, like, you know what I have fun doing? You know what's like my big stress for this? I go out to the track with my buddies. We ride really fast and we have a good time. And then afterwards we go get some food and drink beer. That's a good time. That's a good, that's, that's the person I want to, I want to transform and make. And, or maybe also get to the point where they decide to go race, which sure. puts it at a different level. Sure. But even then there's a lot of people and myself included, I've raced, but I can also do track days. And I was doing this for years. I was doing, I was rider coaching for years and i was it was satiated by it to a point i mean i was frustrated with all the above things that you're talking about with an organization that was abjectly inept at what they were doing and i would say something and eventually got to the point where i wasn't being listened to so i left i was like okay i can't I, if you're not going to make the changes oh, for sure to be good then i end up with other organizations and i enjoy the way they do the things and every time i go to a motor course a day it's always done extremely well they have a tight ship I've never seen anything obnoxious there. Sure, other than a few customers that get a little funky, but they get weeded out pretty quick because they don't suffer fools with that. They are there to build enthusiasts and to keep them coming back and riding bikes, whether it be Ducatis or not. They don't give a crap. They want people coming to their track days. I mean, it's good for business, let alone good for you know the humanity or motorcycling humanity. So I, I like to see it like that. And I love helping people. And I would love doing, I would always do the slowest group because then you really aren't stressed at all. You're just riding around. You have to be conscious. Use your mirrors, like I was saying. Putting mirrors on the bike and on a street fighter, you're sitting up straight and you're doing the thing and you're watching people in your mirrors. Then you're following them for a bit. You all come in and there was somebody else that would do like a, tr a, a like a, an instruction thing. Then I would kind of come in as a supplementary and be like, hey, I saw you doing this in this corner. Try and do this. Try and do this, right? Whatever that thing it might be. And I love doing that. I think it was helpful. And I, I feel like I... Had a lot of people get better because of me Absolutely. being able out there. I'll right? raise my hand. That's how I got better at being a track rider. Because I came out. So I started track riding when I still lived in the West Coast. I did like one or two days with um, my college buddies. Crashed my first track day. Crashed like the second or third session. Second session? On that Yamaha? No, 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 no. On my Suzuki, on my TLR. Oh, God. TLR. You're such a skippy. That thing was rad. I love that bike. I saw one the other day and I was like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that would be to, one of those that you would probably ride and be very, very disappointed. I don't probably, know. Well, I bet it would still be interesting you know if it was set up well. It'd be rad. Yeah, because I can remember even when I was a skippy, that <laughs> that that chassis You're just kind of skippy, just Stop it. swimming, yeah, swimming around because the rear rotary damper system, yeah, would fade because it would actually they put it right by the oh yeah right next exhaust. to the exhaust absolutely so it, it would heat up and, and it would fade and it was too small and it was poorly designed it and was all, the, on all and on. the things whereas I raced against one of those back in the day at Willow that was set up with a Maxton shock and all the good had a shit. linkage and everything yeah, everything yeah. and it was that fucking thing was on rails it was really good it had good power Made a great decent power. chassis yeah a little heavy but whatever heavy. right heavy. it could keep up with the at the time the nine nine sixes and and uh, Aprilia. Aprilia Emile's to a point, right? To a point, like like at the low level, it was they're pretty good. So yes, if it was one of those that was built correctly, but a, a box stock one no. would be a wallowing pig. It'd be tough. Yeah, it'd, it'd be, be like Hayabusa 
level. I think the Hayabusa. Would be, I, yeah. think, I think that that was a put down to the Hayabusa. The Hayabusa like really? No. What are like, you really? talking are you, about? <laughs> yeah, sure. Hayabusa, right. please. Well, yeah, I I I don't. I had a weird setup with track days because I, I was mine was nineteen ninety six. So it's not like it was a, a shit ton of track days out there at that time. I went and did the class school, Reg Pridmore, which was an, an instructing type of thing. And I did that at, a, at the Streets of Willow, Sport Rider. It was a Sport Rider day. So Nikki and Atch, Jason Black and Lance Hulse were there. It was a big deal. And these are people that I'd been reading on uh, from Central Texas for years. Now. And so I was able to, it was like meeting a bunch of heroes, getting to go out to track day. And I was just inept, couldn't, barely could get around the track. Then did uh, corner work for Keith Code Superbike School. So you, at that time, and I'm sure they still do it, you would volunteer to corner work and you would then get track time kind of in between the sessions so there'd be two people per set of corners and you would be with them and when you know you were you were out on the track they'd stay there in corner work or and then they'd switch huh. off that was a way i did it in phoenix while i was going to mmi and because i'm not a scientologist i didn't get any further into the right i did not believe you in you, Zenu, didn't, you didn't go up to so the next I couldn't level get to the next you, you didn't go clear my i did not go clear I'm not a Shalon or Shalin or what is it? Fuck, I don't know the terminology. There's all kinds of good stuff there. Shabbat Shalom? <laughs> no, that's something else. Yeah, same shit as far as I'm concerned. So it's all fucking hocus pocus. And that, But that was one of those things where the, you knew there was something going on. There's something special with that group. Anyway, go out to LA, work at a shop that does track days. Pro Italia did track days. But before that, I had started racing YSR 50s and go-kart tracks. And so I never really had a whole lot of instruction other than that first track day and that I just was racing. So I started racing and I'm out there ra uh, riding on a 125 two stroke. I didn't have many people that could say, Hey, Quentin, you should do this and that. I just started racing and, and, and got to that point pretty quick. But once I started racing 600s, I, boy, I could have used a lot of instruction at that time, you know, and I'd, it's, it depends on, you know, you can only go on natural talent for so long. So you have to be able to kind of view any given rider, depending on how they're approaching their riding, like as, well, what does this person know? What have they ridden? Where, where have they been? All right, what tracks have you done? Because if you could just go around at PIR and you ride a Hayabusa at PIR, you're only going to have a specific set of skills that's, that's to a Hayabusa at PIR, right? You're so, like the taken of motorcycling. What does that mean? I've developed a very specific skill set. And oh, I'm yeah, very right. Good at yeah, sure. Right. Rescuing my daughter who gets in <laughs> absurd situations <laughs> multiple times. But you see what I mean? Like you could kind of pigeonhole yourself if you aren't careful, depending sure. on if you only have access to certain tracks. So I was privileged to be out all of a go-kart tracks all over Southern California. And then once I started racing 125s, I immediately got out as soon as, soon as I could. Thunderhill, Button Willow, Streets of Willow, wherever I could get out. I wanted to be out. Um, and then I started racing national stuff as soon as I could. Super fortunate, super privileged to be able to do that. A lot of people don't have that. Up here in the Northwest, we do have a chance for that. And if people can get away from that backyard easy track that we have here 10 minutes from downtown Portland and go up to the ridge and or go out to ORP, holy crap. That's why I loved instructing at ORP. It's difficult. It's 20-something turns. It's short. It's small. It's tight. It's more analogous to road riding than like 
PIR is gnarly. It's fast. And, and you have to be used to or be ready for some serious pace. And that can freak people out that are beginners as well. So some of it's good because it's simple and, and whatnot. Some of it's bad because it's high speed. That whole wall along the long, like turn six and seven, that's gnarly, right? And a lot of people can get freaked out by it. I don't even notice it. I just go around it. So, you know, it's a, it's an interesting dynamic depending on where you're at. And I haven't done a lot of instructing at, at PIR. I've sat in on the class and I've helped people with lines like, you know, Hey, let's look at this trap map. Where, where are you going into this corner? Where are you apexing? Where are you right? And I'll do that. And I'm really good at that. I can usually get that pretty quick, but not like getting out and following people. Not a whole lot. I have the rider's Jersey for motocross. I just haven't done it a bunch. So I, I love doing it. I'd like to get into it more, but that's like, would you want it to start a track day organization? No, nope. it's a lot of work. Nope. It's a it's a huge undertaking, and it's a lot of stress. And I see how easy it is to do it badly. That I I don't man, I don't know if I'd want that. Now, can I see myself doing that in twenty years? Well, maybe. Yeah, maybe I could see myself as I'm older, and I just want to help out more. I maybe. I don't I'm still know. a nope. Yeah, I'm still a nope. But I do. I I'll echo what you said in terms of it. It's really rewarding to to work with with a newer rider. And, and show them something and, and watch them learn it. Yeah. And that's, that's always been the thing for me that, that I found very rewarding as, as an instructor or a teacher is when you, you impart some sort of knowledge, you show, you show the thing and to see someone get it. Yeah. And I mean, there was one guy that, you know, came up, he's like, Hey, I want to, I want to follow you around. I'm really trying to like figure out my lines here. Like I'm a mess. I'm just trying to figure it out. And, you know, we go out, <clears throat> they do a couple laps uh, of him following me. And I, you know, I'm showing him the line and then I actually had to stop and pick up some crash and I had to pick up the bike. So unfortunately he was supposed to come and, and I was going to follow him. Well, it worked out that we've got the bike crasher guy situated and finished in time just as the guy was coming back around again from the other time. So we picked it back up and to see the, the four laps or so that had gone by in that amount of time to see the difference. We're like, yep. Yeah, you got it. Like you, you changed your line in three, you changed your line in four. You're going so much quicker into one and two and you're picking it up. You're like, yeah, that's really rewarding. Like, you know, we didn't quite get to do the thing and you still got it figured out. Yeah. And, uh, I know for me, and this is kind of what I was saying before, starting on the West coast, just doing track days with my buddies and not really crashing uh, at one of them and not really learning anything at the other one and just being kind of a dickhead. And then going back East where the track days are more structured and they have rider coaches with bright orange, you know, t-shirts on. So you know who they are and they make a big thing of like, Hey, if you want instruction or if you want to get like pointers, stop at the end of pit out yeah, or, or pit pit in. Sorry. Yeah. And, and like, you know, if someone saw you, they'll come up and be like, Hey, I saw you going through three. You look really good. You're doing this. You're doing that. Hey, let's meet up next session and I'll show you a way through four and five and da, 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 da. And having a lot more hands-on, like that really is what took me from a mid-group rider to a top-group rider. And I think if I hadn't had that, I probably would have kind of petered out, like you said, on natural talent and maybe still been a B-group rider, but a fast B-group rider. And then just gotten bored with it because I wasn't making any progress. But because I was making progress, that's what got me really hooked. And then I was like, yeah, I'm doing, I was doing like a dozen track days every year at the end of it. And I was like, no, yeah, now I just, that's all I want to do. I don't really want to ride on the street as much as I, as I was before. I want to do track days and I want to do this thing. And that's kind of what helped spur me into asphalt and rubber, tr- truthfully, because it got me interested in the industry. It got me interested in motorcycles. It got me engaged. I went from being a person who owned a motorcycle to being a motorcyclist, where this is something that's a part of, of my identity now. 
And I think that's huge. And I want to, I want that to, to be a thing for other people. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I can, I can, I, I've been close to that for a long time. And I, I just had a very, having this conversation, thinking about how strange my journey for, to, to learning how to ride fast had been, um, just kind of putting myself in the fire right off the bat. And that, in that late nineties, early two thousands time, then getting lucky enough to work at a shop that did track days. So then I became one of the people that would tell people how, what's going on. And this is how the track day goes. I'd get up in front of the, the people at a pro, pro Italian track day at the streets of Willow. But then I never did rider coaching because we didn't have that. We just had the ABC or, or right. whatever it is, one, two, three group or whatever. And everybody would just go out there and you would try and you would help your friends or the, the customers that you, right. 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 And that your would, group, your little crew, that was it. But not like specifically, was there any, uh, any instruction going on because it was more loose. And as, as the years have gone by, it's tightened up. Cause I was also sponsored by Pacific track time at the time, which was a NorCal deal yeah, PTT. and they got yeah. better and were a pretty good organization. I don't know if they're still around. Yeah, I've ridden with them. Then, yeah. So you start to see the different things, but then once you start racing, all bets are off, right? And once I started racing, and there's a different cup that gets filled, and this is, goes to the psychology. The A group or the small, the slower group, the beginner group, is a different psychology than the people that are in the fast group. Like, where are they? Are they racers? Like, Are they like me and you that could be racers that aren't or... Like you that hasn't raced yet at that high, at that level, and probably need to, or me like just having fun and enjoying it, or are they on the cusp? Or like where are they, where is their brain at? Because some of these people are going so fast, you're like, wow, this person could easily be top five in a in a regional race. Why don't they do it? And you can understand where well because then all of a sudden the the cost factor goes yeah. up and the risk factor and all that stuff. Yeah, goes you, up. you know, I'm talking. That's why that's why I don't race because it just. One, if I did it, I'd have to go to every round and, and, and make it a thing. And I'm just not ready for that time commitment yeah, or commitment, that yeah, financial sure. commitment or that resource commitment. And it's because it does change it. Now it's now you've taken my recreational activity and turned it into a competitive activity. Yeah. The Venn diagram on those has a lot of overlap for me, but there's a lot of there's some there's some stuff that doesn't overlap and it changes it. Yeah. It's it's truthfully, I went from from sailing at the national level and I haven't been on a boat really since. Because being on a boat is a different experience for me. I don't have fun when I'm on a boat. And there's a lot of racers that are like that. I'm a competitor like on a boat. Yeah, and I, I know so many racers that I'm like, why why don't you just go do track day? Oh, uh-uh, no way. And I'm like, I don't get it because I'm not I'm not driven by that. I'm driven by riding the lap, the track. I like racing with other people. I like beating people, sure, but it's not a critical thing for me. So when I get on the track. I'm fine with just circulating and working on the bike or working on whatever it is that I could be to, to go faster or, or hit that corner perfectly or whatever. So I understand that, but boy, that's a tough one because then that's kind of a negative thing. And if you look at it like that, I get why that would be tough. Not something you want to do. You, you talk to any serious athlete in any discipline and they will basically tell you if you want to get better, you need to go do that thing with people who are better than you because they're going to push you outside of that comfort zone. I remember when I was um, running. It's like, you want to train? Okay, you do six-minute miles. Start training with someone that does five-minute, 30 miles because they're going to push you. They're going to make you get out of that whatever zone that you're in. We're like, when you're running, like, I feel comfortable. This feels good. No, 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 no. You need someone that's going to push you. You need someone that's going to make you pass out at the finish line kind of thing. It's the same thing with sailing. You want to get better at sailing and better at racing boats. You need to race against people that are you know, know the rules better and know boat handling better than you do. Or you want to do it with motorcyclists, 
you know, it's the exact same thing. Follow around someone, follow behind someone on a lap that's slightly faster than you. They're going to break a little bit deeper. They're going to get on the throttle a little bit quicker. They're going to take a different line. They're going to, you know, be more aggressive in their transitions. And that's going to force you to do the same. You'll start realizing like, hey, I can break deeper into turn one. I can get on the throttle quicker out of turn five. I can go down that hill quicker, you know, than, than I thought I could. And I don't need to hold on to the brakes and paddle it down. I can do this thing and this, that. You're going to crash a couple times. You're going to get beat up a couple times. You're going to, you know, have some, some hard starts, but you're also going to get better. And I think that's a huge thing because otherwise you, you get stuck in what your comfort zone is and then you stagnate. And then that, my worry is then you leave the sport and yeah, go on and absolutely. do kite surfing or whatever the heck it is. Sure. And that's not something there. And there is a difference between being physically, I would just imagine a runner, there's a bit of form. There's a bit of like you can learn from there's somebody. There's a certain amount of like right? form. There's a certain amount of natural ability. Some but of like, it's just like you're chasing though. You got on, on the dirt bike and road bike, there's more form. There's more technique that you really have to dive into to get to that point. And it's tough. You need a bit of a combo of both. You need to be able to follow that person. But then after you're like, so you're going really deep into turn one. How are you doing that? And then you have to kind of dissect. It's not just fucking hitting the brakes late. You're setting yourself up, getting your body positioning right, understanding what the dynamic is, understanding what your goal is. Oh, well, that's because I want to hit this apex at this time, et cetera, et cetera. And being able to dissect it a bit, which is something I'm super comfortable with on the road bike side, but not not on the dirt. Like, But seriously, I don't know how to tell somebody how to fucking rail a berm. And I certainly don't know how to tell somebody how to jump over over a log. I can barely do that myself. So I'm not that confident in my dirt riding abilities, and I need to work on that, which is why I went – one of the reasons why I went to the uh, the uh, uh, Eric Bostrom school is, of course, that wasn't like dirt bike stuff. That was mostly flat track with an eye on road race. But it does help. Every little bit helps. And I'll say even my experience this past weekend at uh, Castle Rock on a Multistrada – you bet your bitty babkas I was fucking using stuff that I had just learned at, at Bostrom School, for sure. But I wasn't really directly thinking about it until afterwards. I'm like, oh, yeah, that was a thing. And that was the way I was approaching that corner. And that's how I was able to get on the throttle early. And, I mean, it doesn't seem like apples to, to kumquats with a, you know, a, uh, whatever it was, a KLX 110 to a, or 140 to a Multistrada. But it all is, it is two wheels. And you're doing similar things and you got to be able to get on the brakes and then get on the gas. And that's what the key is. And with all the stuff you're doing is staying on, having the least amount of time on the brakes and the most amount of time on the gas and not having much in between. But that's not always what you're going for as far as learning is speed. What you're learning is... No, speed's a byproduct. Yeah. And that's... It's the other thing. And that's the crux of somebody like me that's like, I'm... I do like to go fast. My brain goes into, well, how do you go fast mode instead of how are you just instructing to just be proficient? You know, that was one of the things that, you know, coming back to, to the control riding, the, the riders that I worked with, I would say, okay, Hey, let's, let's work on your line or let's work on your body position. Let's not work on you going faster than the front straight or deeper yeah. into turn one or this yeah. or that. Cause that all, that just comes, that comes with it. Sure. And there's a couple of riders in particular I can think of where it's just like, like you've got all the things you've got the right line. You've got the right body position. We can correct a couple little things here and there. But the reality of the rest of it is like, okay, now that we have that, now we can start applying this idea like, okay, you know, pick your break. You know, where are you breaking in for turn one now? Okay, you're breaking at signpost five. Okay, try four. Okay. And then you come to that. Now try three. That's when you can start like building up your speed when you already have those basics, that fundamental, that foundation. You start getting more comfortable. Speed's a byproduct of how comfortable you are on it. 
The other extreme is then when you're racing, say you're practicing, first practice in, say, say on a Friday, frankly, is getting to the point where you blow a corner and that you're comfortable blowing the corner, getting out into the area that's not uh, not grippy, that might be marbly, and being able to, to, to recover. Not Obviously, you've lost time, but being able to comfortably get back on. So there's, there's another level of like, well... You don't teach people how to do that necessarily. It's really difficult, but that's what you need to do is like, that's why you have to teach threshold breaking. Just like, Hey, go and practice just breaking as fucking hard as you can until it stops and without locking up the wheel or whatever the thing is, whatever the threshold you're, you're meeting. Cause then that person can push to the edge and then feel comfortable going over it, but not, you know, running off into the grass or crashing. And that's a tough one too. That's for me. That's where I'm at. Like if I'm learning a track, Usually, if I'm having a good weekend, I have blown two corners on the course while I'm in practice. That way, I know, and that's what happened to me in that in the in the race this weekend. I blew a corner, almost on purpose, because I'm like, well, I'll see how far I can, you know, get into this and get on the brakes. Oof. And then I feel I felt funky. I was like, well, I'm gonna crash if I try and turn in right now. Blow the corner. Somebody tries to get by me, and then they crash. And I'm like, all right, well, that's good, right? So you you have to press the limits in order to 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 understand where they are sometimes. That's um. There's like a metaphor for life in there somewhere. No, it's true, and that's yeah, and that goes for a lot of things. And that could be the risk of going to find a different job, the risk of buying a house, the risk of d- doing so many different things that most people are have a bit of trepidation going into. Once you do it, like now, I don't have any qualms about going and buying another house. The first time you do it, it's like, oh, it's your whole life, you know. Now I'm like, all right, now I know the ins and outs. It's not that big of a deal. It's just my credit score. What could happen? Well, you know, that's the type <laughs> of thing, though. You start, you you get more comfortable with it. That, that's an example, though. That I, if I hadn't have tried, probably at a l- little bit larger level than I should have, then I wouldn't know what I could do. Right. You starting asphalt and rubber, right? Uh, any, any. But that's that's. I mean, I think for for me, I have a, a very high tolerance for risk, and I think some of that, truthfully, comes a little bit from motorcycling, sure, and some of it comes from kind of just my personality. But I, I definitely have a couple friends I can think of that started businesses and failed, and you kind of look back on it, and you're like, I don't think it failed because of the business. I think it failed because you're just not a startup kind of person, and that's just a very specific personality trait that succeeds in that a startup it, type of person. Yeah. Well, just, just like that can handle the risk and is going to be okay with the ambiguity of like, what is success? And you're not, you know, did I make a dollar today or did I lose a dollar today? I don't yeah. know. Yeah. And, uh, and does it matter? Cause I'm does, playing a long game. Right. Exactly. Right. You know, there's, there's just, I see that in the industry sometimes as well. Where you sit there and you're just like, okay, like, yeah. you're doing that thing, but like, I don't really think you're doing that thing. You're not doing that thing to the level that you need to in order to succeed. You're just going to kind of kick the can for a little while and then realize that, okay, this isn't working. Then you'll or you just watch somebody blow it, just blow it the fuck up like I did at Sizz. Like that was r- ridiculous watching that. Then seeing what happens at, say, Alta, seeing kind of a metered, pretty bitching approach to, to a startup. It's pretty good and it's working. So I like seeing it. Doesn't mean it's going to f- work forever. But I would say, especially with my experience, the view I'm looking at, say, what Motosiz was doing relative to what well, Alt yeah. is doing, it's not even in the same zone. Doesn't mean everybody there was ready for for the way the startup has gone, but they, they're they ready enough for it to put it in the hands of the people that are and they can kind of look at it in a very um, 
I don't know, circumspect way and kind of like, all right, well, this isn't perfect, but we're going to be able to get it, you know, keep notching it up next level, next level, you know, and the, whereas Sizz was not even close to that. It was not even a little bit close to that. That was just a, just fucking try and hail Mary everything. Well, and I would say like those two companies are, are completely opposite from each other. Other than the fact that they're both small startup companies. And that was small, it. Small, yeah, exactly. Small startup motorcycle companies, but that's the only thing they shared in common really completely different ownership structures, completely different funding structures, completely different goals, completely different, you know, philosophies. So, I mean, apples and kumquats, as you said. Yeah, could be, but it's definitely gives you an idea of what it takes and seeing like, say the three co-founders of Alta, maybe they tempered each other and were able to get, cause that same to me, it's, I want to create a motorcycle from scratch. That's both of them did the same thing. And there's not that many people in the world that have done that. So seeing what Michael did, he created a motorcycle from scratch. Did it work? No. Was it bitching? Yeah, it was. But it had nothing to do with like, well, was the end goal to be selling it? No, maybe not. Who knows what his real end goal was? It wasn't the same as the Alta. The Alta was always, all right, we want to make a consumer product for sure. But at the base, it was, we want to make a bitching motorcycle that goes well. And they both did that in certain ways. And the Alta obviously... Way better. <laughs> like not even it's not even the same, right? Because they had a, a better way of looking at it. And they they but they have they there's a lot of risk involved. I think they did a lot of good calculations on on the risk involved and I think it's worked out so far. It's employing me, so I'm happy with it, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well I got I got nothing else. All right, fair enough. I think we've we've uh we've talked well on the subject of uh, teaching and, and motorcycles and then life lessons. Wax on from? Wax off. <laughs> right. Just karate kid that. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know, Quinn. I think we're just about out of time. You want to talk about some newsy stuff? You yeah, let's just, do it. There's so many. Danny Pedrosa retired. Mm. I know that's that's a big thing in your life. Mm. I, I, I think all I did was just a quick look up. I'm like, he had like three championships, I think. So I look yeah. up and he's like, yeah, he... He's a world champion. A lot he's of people a three, are like, oh, three-time world champion. Yeah, he's three-time, two in a row, bitching yeah. against some gnarly people. I was looking yeah. at that. Yeah. Then, then the Wikipedia page went into the. It was like a full page of his brokenness, like the sheer amount of times that that person has fucked themselves oh, yeah. up. Holy crap! It was like I had to stop reading after the fifth one, and I think there were twenty-seven of them. There's a great graphic that BT Sport did. Uh, I don't know if I, this definitely isn't going to translate over to radio, but I'll just show it to you. <laughs> and like they basically show like, this from afar. It's like a diagram. There's his body and then little lines pointing to every single thing that he has broken. I assume is that it's right? like everything. It's almost like evil Knievel. We're like, what bone hasn't he broken? That's oh. easier. It's easier to go that way. So it's interesting to think about the fragility of somebody that there. He's small in stature. It would be interesting to do a deep dive on what was what was it, right? Well, I think I think I think there's a couple factors there. I think being smaller does affect it to a certain degree. You would think in, not. You think he durability better, right? <laughs> so lightweight. It's like I don't know. Does a tennis ball bounce better than a basketball? I don't know. But but also I think go back to what period of time he was in motorcycling. Traction control wasn't necessarily a thing yet. Airbag suits weren't really a thing yet. Like. How many high sides do we see in MotoGP now? Like, if you see a high side on a race weekend, yeah. not only is it probably the only one that you've seen, but it's, that's a, that's a, nasty. That's a sight. And they're nasty because they are. But 
there was a point in time where high sides were really common in motorcycling. Sure. And Danny Pedrosa was... stroke era, but yeah. back in that MotoGP... But, but even early MotoGP days, there was a lot of high sides. We hadn't quite figured out that whole traction control thing yet. And so... That'd be especially, especially with those Bridgestones. Remember those Bridgestones when they got cold, especially early day Bridgestones? There were a lot of corner entry high sides. I remember from that era, from that 2004 through 2010 era, it would be off throttle corner entry, whoosh, and it was like ooh, painful. I remember Lorenzo when Rossi broke his leg. Those were those weird corner entry high sides yeah. that were just like, oh, those, cold, those, those were all, you just cold mentioned, tire, cold tire yeah. high sides. So that was that was kind of a thing. So, um, congratulations to Danny. I think he, he's a fantastic person. If you get to know him, he's a fantastic racer. When you look at the record, um, I always cringe when I hear Americans talking shit about Danny Pedrosa because it's usually because of the Nikki, Nikki. Hayden thing. Yeah, and um, it's so tribal. And I remember I've been just as guilty. It's as so anybody. tribal. I remember the Danny sucks T-shirts, and I remember <laughs> talking to Nikki about it. And this was this was like four or five years ago yeah he's like i'm over it he's like he's like i was over it that day yeah he's like danny like i won the championship so who cares like i I, at the end of the day i won uh i've gotten over it danny and i've gotten over it and we don't really like i don't really think about it so why are people who weren't involved why why do they seem to still care like why do you still care about this thing i don't care danny doesn't care i won the championship let's let's move move on move on I think there was a bit of, and even now, I think back to my my viewing of it back in that time, so late 2000s, Pedrosa, Lorenzo, coming up through like this, it was a system in, in Spain, yeah. and seeing the system, yeah. uh, Gibernal, these people that have come up through it, and you see, Rossi was part of a system to a point, his dad was a GP racer, so it's hard not to be able to just privilegedly come up through it and be fast. But these kids were like next level, hardcore from like birth. They were level. groomed. And in such a way that... And it, not even that they were groomed. They were in a track because it was it was the Spanish Dorna, the meteorized yeah, organizer, totally. the Spanish sponsor, Repsol, the Spanish yeah. team of, you know, HRC, finding the Spanish rider... And I think I think what you what you were about to get to was that it was like so favoritism, yeah. so much favoritism to sure. this what we would say undeserving rider when yeah. Nikki, our American boy, is out winning the championship, and and that just tainted the view yeah. of of for me for sure Lorenzo, uh, even though he wasn't part of that that Repsol thing. Well, he is now <laughs> the irony, uh, but with, with Pedrosa, the combination of him taking Nikki out before then, I don't really think I thought anything of Pedrosa. I remember being stoked because he was a 250 and I had raced 125 and 250. So I liked the, the people that were fast on those bikes well, above the people that were super bike fast. But then once he got to MotoGP and you just read all the shit about him being a puppet to pooch, 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 pig, pooch, pooch, whatever. And you'd think, oh, well, he's just one of these little automaton robot racers that's just been groomed from the get-go. Why do I give a shit about him? And I'm I'm kind of still at that point where I like, is the Nikki thing it? Or is it just, well, you just were given everything on a platter and you crashed yourself in oblivion and you never got a MotoGP championship. But you're a three-time world champion. I'd fucking rest easy if I were him. And I'd be stoked, and it does help that you say that everybody that you know loves him and thinks he's a rad guy, and if he's rad, good. I'm glad to hear that. I'm sorry that his, he, he's not racing anymore to a point. The other part of me is, well, you had 18 years, you're good to go. You're a good career. 
He's still, um, I'm going to mess this up. Like the fifth winningest. Fuck yeah, I saw that. GP too. racer He's ever. Really? But that's the thing is like, how did this not translate into to championships? And you just see how freaking broken he is, right? Yeah. And that's the main thing. There's a little bit of luck that comes with championship. There's a little bit like what your competitors and I think getting injured over and over again really is what yeah. takes its toll. And Absolutely. That's, that's hard. He was on track multiple times to be it. Just perhaps had some, I guess the bad luck is one of it, or he ran out of skill enough to, to hurt himself or it was fragile or whatever the thing is. And also look at the era that he raced in. You know, he's racing against Rossi's. He's, he's racing but, against uh, Lorenzo's the, uh, and Marquez's Stoner. and Stoner's. And yeah. All these riders that he will beat go, Stoner will for go, a championship. Yeah. He was like that. That's notable on the two fifty. Yeah. So a lot of people got to realize that he that, beat Stoner in MotoGP championships too. Sure, but on the two fifty back in that time, that was like gnarly. Yeah. So you know, going against a crop of riders, it's not like an Agostini. Like, well, who did Agostini race against? Yeah, sure. Who did Duhan race against? You know, who who are the other? Who are these rivals that were pushing them to to you know be greater than they were? And like, well, those really those were eras of dominance. Rossi, I think a lot of Rossi's victories, you could say, like, well, who was who was there? Like, he was such a cut above other the other races of. Oh, of and that was times. what made it remarkable was that he was such a cut above that yeah. it was he transcended even being. He was so better. He's so much better that it didn't matter. Same with Duin, right? I and and most people would always you know there's always a well would Agostini beat so and so or would. You know, Schwantz right. beats who, him. Who's the better eh, rider? It is tough to. It is tough to. Why Schwantz a MotoGP legend when he only won the championship? Yeah, once? right. So You're with like, Rossi, well, it was like, fuck. look at the talent. He was he was a such so a cut above and beyond, and so was doing that. You you got to put them up, even if there weren't that many. But I don't know. You would go go back to 2002, 2003, 2004. There were plenty of very fast people racing against Rossi back in that time for sure. sure. Absolutely. I'm not trying to take it away. I'm just saying, like, the, you know, the, you go through these eras and there's ways, like, we are in a very much a time when we have a lot of very talented riders that if they had been in a, racing at a different point in their careers, yeah, yeah. or been, in, sorry, like, you know, if the, they, they might have the been time machine had worked out what better championship level, it would have sure. been different. I mean, Danny, Danny was one of the original aliens. Yeah. Just to put it in perspective. Yeah. So very interesting stuff. Uh, wish them all the best. Super stoked by Rossi getting second still. Like, I'm, of course, it's like Marquez is almost at runway standpoint. Like, it's like, well, he's. Especially the socks and ring. Come on. It's just, just, right. So seeing that, but then watching the race, I was not expecting Rossi to do well. So seeing that, pretty stoked. Pretty stoked. Like, this dude is really keeps on further cementing how badass he is that he was able to do this. He's making that argument of for the greatest of all time. Yeah, for sure. Even though Marquez is making a pretty good argument for himself, I have to say, right? But, but is Marquez doing anything different now that Rossi was, was or wasn't doing 10 years ago? Not really. That'll be the test for me with Marquez will be what's he going to be like five, 10 years from now? Yeah, sure. Right. You know, when you're at the twilight stages of your career, yeah, are you can. battered and broken because you've crashed it too many times? Are you still kicking ass and taking names and blowing people out of the water? No. They don't know. And that's, that'd be curious. Um, what else is there? I got a lot of new bike stuff. Uh, we won't be seeing a Triumph Daytona 765. It's as just so bizarre. Like, all the pieces were kind of there. I think, truthfully, Triumph's waiting for 2020 when the Euro 5 thing comes on board. Oh, okay. Got it. And that makes it too. So then they would have a year of supplying the spec engine for Moto Two. Yeah, 
and then that would be able, the, that'd be a good build up, and then yeah. they could bring out a bike that wasn't just a Daytona chassis yeah, with yeah. a seven six five. That'd be it. cool. That'd be neat if they used really like they could use Moto two level stuff. All right, not all of it, not 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 all the bits and pieces like Olin's and shit like that. But I mean, like the chassis setup. Be interesting to see if they could market something like that. Yeah, I'll be curious. I mean. At the end of the day, I also think we have to temper expectations because Honda came in and supplied the CBR engine for the Moto Two class, <laughs> did, did, and they really didn't, didn't do shit yeah, with their six hundred. Yeah, didn't really do anything. It was like at the end of the day, like yeah. like there's a business thing where it's just like, yeah, that was a really great way for us to sell like five hundred engines. And I'm sure, I'm sure Honda made some money on that deal. You'd have, you'd as I'm so. sure Triumph is making some money out of this deal, and they're going to get a little PR buzz and they're going to get a little marketing. We're going to talk about it like in the class. You know, sure. anytime there's a write-up, you talk about, oh, the Triumph three-cylinder engine was during that. Yeah, yeah. So there's got to be some value that just in like the most basic of business terms. So sometimes I think like, well, slow your horses. This doesn't have to mean, yeah, sure. you know, it relates to any sort of product or anything. It'd be smart. That's how you kind of like get the synergies if you want to get some good business mm, bingo going on. Synergies. But, you know, you could Honda that and just phone it in. Um, speaking of phoning it in, Yamaha will be making a <laughs> mid-sized version of the Nikon. Oh, great. Like, uh, based off the R3 kind of platform, uh, which will be interesting. So excited. I, I actually really want to, I want to ride the big boy version. I don't quite understand the medium size one. That's kind of like the, the, I don't know. It's, it's, it could be good for people that don't, are that aren't ambulatory enough to ride no, motorcycles. Still, they still lean. I get it, but you, but you like don't. You, like you have to like, they don't, it's not like the, the Piaggio where you can lock it and it's, it's upright. Like it's a motorcycle. I mean, like, I guess what I'm trying to say is there's no advantage for someone that, that is maybe handicapped in a way that riding not, not a, a normal motorcycle huh. would. I thought it might have hard. some articulation that kept it. Doesn't need a fucking kickstand. No, That's all I need to know. Fuck that you, thing. You, if you, if you just like set it upright and let go of it, the it'll, whole thing falls over. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, not falls over. No, over. falls over. Falls over. Huh. Falls over. Falls over. Really? Yeah. Like the wheels hit the ground. Like handlebar touches the ground. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Think about it. Because it just it goes. It. it, it you say you think about it, but all I think about is how the articulation could stop at a stopping point. Yeah, well, yeah it's going to stop at a forty-five degree angle. But at that point, because that's the maximum articulation. 45 hmm. and then at that point the weight's just too much it's just gonna go blink blink hmm. yeah i'd have to see the blink so does it have a kickstand it does oh sweet yeah then that's okay <laughs> it's, it's okay in your house that's well in that if case I, it's not an as abomination as long as i can put the kickstand up then i'm good uh, to go you uh, know what i'm saying uh, get your <laughs> kickstand up um, <laughs> um, 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 um i like this there's already talk of uh ducati street fighter v4 yeah sure i don't think it'll be this year no, I don't. No. I, my my interactions with the Bothan spies suggest not this year. No, I wouldn't. I don't think it makes much sense. They're gonna they're gonna have the big boosh of the thousand cc, the yes, R version, the R. and they don't want to take anything away from. Yeah. That. Well, I'm trying to play this out because I know they're gonna show a bike at World Ducati Week, and by the time the show actually comes out, we'll be just about into World Ducati. Oh Week. yeah, okay. And I'm curious what that bike is. What I'm trying to be? figure that out. Could be Scrambler Desert Sled 1100. Heard that here first. Yeah. Could be the Panigale R because we know there's going to be a Panigale R. Yeah, they've V4 already R. said it. So it's like, We've yeah, seen it. Sure. You know, it's been on the racetrack. It's done things. I think, though, like the street bike version of that is going to have cool aero shit. At least I hope it does. And that would be kind of a cool thing that would make sense at World Ducati Week. You should see Jensen's twiddling my finger, his fingers. I'm, like, I'm, like my, I'm just getting like it's jazz. Not, it's not like doing the It's almost doing the jazz quotes. hands. But yeah, it's a little jazz, it's almost hands. jazz hands. He's, he's very excited by this. 
Well, I like the idea of a Panigale V4. Yeah. Uh, I want one. Or sorry, Pan, uh, Street Fighter V4. Yeah, I have to admit, that's a tempting one. Right? Do you see the do you see the render that someone did? Yeah, it's online. I mean, it's like the old bike. With yeah, the, it's too much yeah. like the old bike. Like you're gonna but it doesn't do, look bad. No, I'm if sure it'll be fine. If that showed up, I would not kick it out of the garage. No, you'd be okay with it? It would find a home. Yeah, for sure. It would be, yeah, we'd be friends. Second year model. I'll wait for the second year. <laughs> Can't go first year model at any year. Made that brand. mistake already. <laughs> yeah, not not gonna do that. Um, looks like a z- new ZX6R will be coming Another in. Another 636 based thing. They'll do a 600 and a 636. I also heard that we're gonna see a pretty significant update come for the 10R or the 10 double R, I should say. Hmm. Uh, different motor, different mounting. Might oh, be so. Be, it's gonna be definitely new. I don't know if it's gonna be like new, 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 but like at least new, 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 new. At least new, that new. new, new. Not just like new, like eh. Yeah. Not like not like bold new graphics new and not warmed over plastics not on the like same thing like Honda, Honda style yeah. CBR 1000RR yeah. new same thing as 2008 but yeah. like new new yeah okay so well that could be good uh what else is there uh new new BMW S1000 RR sounds like that'll be a new new counter rotating crankshaft is the is the thing I keep hearing mm. which could be interesting you think that- it'll be a cross plane. I don't think it'll be a cross plane. I think it'll be just counter rotating crankshaft. Mm. I think it'll be a screamer. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that would be the first production superbike with a counter rotating. Are you crankshaft. sure the Yamaha doesn't have that? I'm pretty sure. Are you sure the Panigale V4 doesn't have that? No, that I, that might that might actually have it. Yeah, I can't I think remember. It does. I I swear one of those. I things think the Panigale V4 does. I'd have to go back and look at my notes. I don't think the R1 does. I'd love to see somebody run the calcs on all that because you're you're still spinning a clutch pack and it's like where where are all these forces going why are you why are you doing this because you were really and this is something that says we saw was the crank you know we had two cranks because they were supposed to counteract each other which was bullshit but the um if you took the crank and it was just a single crank and you counteracted it with the clutch pack kind of cancels itself out anyway almost completely so that's the question is like, where are the forces? I'd love to, love to see somebody do a deep dive on that once one more of these bikes come out with counter-rotating crankshafts. Just to, just to add a little field to fire, I'm pretty sure every MotoGP bike is counter-rotating crankshaft Yeah, I think now. you're right. That's why I thought I think, the I Yamaha... Think Hondo, I think, was the last one to, to get on board. And that's why I thought the Yamaha R1 had no. had it because of the trickle down from the M1. No, I think, I think they just did the cross plane and left it at that. It'd be great if we could call Yamaha and find out. Too bad you don't have a connection there. Yeah, at, it's too bad we don't know any way of getting a hold of them, uh, like a press person or something. Yeah, just call that would like pick up the you know answer the phone. <laughs> I called. That'd be cool. What else we got? Uh, da, 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 da. There's some more details coming out about that 790 Adventure R from KTM. Yeah, just, I think that bike's gonna be bitching. I agree. I think that bike might have to end up in my garage. Mm. I'm pretty stoked on it. I'm pretty eager to see it. I'm eager for the street or the Super Duke version or the Duke version. The Duke version, which we'll get here, I think November. That's what I've been told. This year is what we're hearing. That's what I've been told. Yeah. I'm I'm late to the party. Very late to the party. Yeah. But at least the party's showing up. Or early to the party for next year. Well, it's already been out in Europe. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's been out in Europe like all year long. You know, I saw uh, an advertisement for a KTM dirt bike that somebody had gotten from like the Australian market or somewhere else where they're not being shipped to the U.S. So they had to get the next new new from somewhere else. It's like, wow, what a weird situation to have that where you can get stuff, you know, it's like, but you could if you really wanted to, if, if, especially on the dirt bike side, you don't have to worry about 
any legalities. You're just riding a dirt bike off road, you know? Yeah. Hmm. Uh, last new bike rumor I heard was new, uh, new-ish RSV4. Yeah. Which could be interesting. Yeah. But that's like, of course, you, you would expect it's been 10 years. It's been forever. Yeah. But, at least, but they've been at the pointy end of it. I, I will give them that. Yeah. Uh, they've, said been, it they've been very good they've about updating it, that bike. And, kept it sharp. Yeah. Keeping it very sharp. The the rumor I did hear that I like a lot, and this is something that came out of Laguna, Cameron Bobier headed to World Superbike. Yeah. On the uh, satellite on the, Yamaha team. Not the Pata Yamaha. Not the Pata Yamaha. So it's something it'd be else. On the uh, GRT Yamaha. So then that begs the question is because so for me, Josh Heron belongs in World Superbike, but. It's going to be tough. Um, no, I think Josh Heron removed himself from any world championship. One, with the whole Moto2 fiasco, and two, at Laguna Seca this year. Oh, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. Just his uh, antics after His that. antics. I mean, uh, you know, he's an ex- he is an American Iannone. An immensely talented rider. <laughs> an immensely talented rider. Uh, I don't who's I kind agree of, with that. <laughs> who, whose baggage from like a personal level is holding him back. The lack of professionalism, let's put it that way. I think he's had to play a little bit of that to keep the attention that he's got. To keep it relevant. Yeah, and he's done a really good job of it. Like, he's got fans because he's he's kind of like the NFG, right? No fucks are given. He did whatever circle you were talking about earlier where here's the circle. The circle. And yeah. then there's no, there's no That's fucks. That's exactly how yep. many fucks were being given. <laughs> the so circle of fucks. Right, so him getting on... Uh, getting on the social media, you know, flat tracking around the R1s on city streets and acting wild and doing burnouts. And yeah, no, I think that's great. It's helping him. And, I think that's absolutely, I think right? you're absolutely right. Now, I think that's the thing, great. whatever happened at Laguna, it's like, ah, that's forgettable, I believe. But you maybe you're right on that level. They just don't want anybody that's going to be. I think, I think that takes away whatever cash he builds up in the US. And that takes away any support here that's going to push him past the barrier that he already created with the Moto 2-ness yeah, in sure. Europe. Because what he needs is someone in Europe to give him a break. Yeah. And be like, hey, yeah, the Moto 2 thing, that that was fucked. We're going to give you a second chance. And there's not going to be that many people that are going to do that. So he needs something driving him, you know, having to be in a driving force coming from the U.S. And if Cameron is only going to the second tier team, then obviously... It's our. It's pretty tough on the Yamaha side. It's. I mean, the problem with Yamaha is it sounds like Yamaha is going to keep both their riders, the Pata Yamaha. Yeah. The upside is to the for those that don't know, the GRT Yamaha team is the factory supported team in World Supersport right now, and they're going to move up a class. And the World Superbike rules are changing in such a way that the satellite teams are going to be the the factory equipment is going to be made available to the satellite teams if they can afford it. So it is possible for a team like GRT to come in and be at a very near factory level, if not equal. Ah, okay. So there is this idea of like, you know, Cameron, Bowie, yeah, he's on a satellite team, but... But he's on a de facto factory. He's not really going to be... factory team. Those results, whatever results he earns isn't going to be because the machine he's riding is too old or too uh, outdated okay. or knocking into things. It's yeah, going to sure. be because of team resources or his personal skill or time in the paddock or knowing the track and all these other yeah. factors. Um, but that seems very, very likely to go through. It's not a done deal, but um, I think there's, there is an, a growing sentiment in Moto America of, Hey, we need to have a place to start sticking our world champ, our champions. Yeah. And they need to, to have, a, that they're good. They need to have a ladder into the world stage. 
And maybe that's not Moto2, and maybe that's not MotoGP, but sure as heck can be World Superbike. And I think Dorna realizes that too. And I think there's a little bit of like, hey, we need to make, we need to have one more Americans World Superbike, and we need to have these feeder series pushing into it. And it's what's good for the goose is good for the gander here. Yeah. So I think there's kind of that push. And I think truthfully at Yamaha too, there's a push like, how many more years can JD Beach ride uh, a Yamaha R6? Yeah, sure. You know, like that's just that guy's kicking ass and taking names. He deserves a shot at a superbike. How many more years are you going to keep him down in the wings? There needs, there's, there's just too much of a logjam in Moto America right now. We need to start getting these, these really top talent guys out of the series and on the tour yeah. world stage and showing, and showing, quite frankly, that American riders are world class riders. Yeah. So hopefully that's what can happen here with, with Cam and, uh, hopefully Yamaha can get their, their shit together and make that happen for them. And I would like to see Beach and Heron on the factory Yamaha. I don't know. Maybe, I think maybe the way Heron's going on that attack bike, just think, stay on the attack yeah, bike. Yeah, no, no, no. I think they got a good program there. I'd love to see Stromboli move, move maybe. Stanboli. Sorry, Stanboli. Stromboli, Stromboli is something is a, That's is a, a delicious treat. Food, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Come on. So I'm sure he's heard that one it's before. It's dinner time. Come yeah. on now. <laughs> Get him hungry. <laughs> yeah, it's Richard Stamboli. Stamboli, you're yeah, right. Yeah, it, it, would, it might make sense. But, you know, from a getting paid or getting up the ladder, if what you're saying as far as his... Uh, not really getting up any, well, then who cares if he's on the factory bike, if he can beat up on the factories as a privateer, that does feel good. Sure. Well, I think, I think, I think we need to have an American team in Superbike, and I think attack racing would be a great one for that. Oh yeah. That's I true. see, I see that make a lot of sense. I don't know if that's in the cards or not, but it makes a lot of that sense. That would be rad. That would be mind. super rad. Um, Ara, make it happen. Yeah. Right. Uh, what else do I got here? What do I else? Um, last piece of, of little racing news. This is, this is not going to mean a lot to a lot of people, but it's a really big deal. The GMT 94 Yamaha squad is leaving endurance racing. And they're going to take the, the super sport team that yes. the, they're taking over the super sport spot that you were just talking about. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So they've already started, uh, racing in the world super sport. They missed the, the beginning of the season, but this is, this was a French outfit. Yamaha had two factory teams in, in world endurance. Most of world endurance is very, very popular in France. Uh, and so one of them was French and the other one was Austrian. And, you know, truth be told, GMT 94 was, it's a huge team. I mean, they're, they're a juggernaut in the world endurance class. Um, the Suzuki endurance racing team's the winningest. The second winningest is GMT 94. Uh, so really kind of interesting to see that they're leaving that series for, for different pastures. And you don't think there's anybody coming in for on a Yamaha team that's high level? I don't think so. I think they're going to kind of just leave it to, to Yart, the Yamaha Austria racing team. Uh, uh, we've seen Yamaha come up with a factory team for Suzuka. And I think, I think truthfully, I think at the end of the day, it's probably just money. Yeah. I think world super sport makes is, it makes a, be, uh, more business sense than, than endurance racing does. Yeah. Like who's, no one's really following endurance racing outside of France, especially yeah. outside of Europe. You know? Outside Europe, I would say more than yeah. just France. But yeah, you're right. Yeah. Maybe the Japanese themselves. You Suzuka. Know, they're, yeah, they're Suzuka in a, for the Japanese is a huge deal. But I don't know if the Boldor or the Slovakian eight hour or whatever. Yeah. I don't think those are big deals in, in Japan. So we'll see. Uh, Quentin, before we finish the show and make kickstand jokes, I do want to just give a moment for William Dunlop, yeah, James Cowton, uh, two road racers we lost in the last uh, week or so to um, 
just tragedies, really. The the race at the Southern 100, just craziness, just absolute craziness. And um, I know Ivan Linton is, you know, in serious critical condition right now. And, you know, hopefully he gets better. For for William, I mean, I just, it's like the most tragic story I've ever heard. Um, With the family. The family, his partner has a, a child on the way. There's a lot of talk that he was going to retire at the end of this year. He's he's really an he doesn't have the the track record so much at the TT as he does at the Ulster Grand Prix. Yeah, and so there's you know he died at the Skiries 100, which is kind of like you know outside of Ireland you've probably never heard of this race. It's not yeah. like a big race, but that's it's just kind of part of the Irish road race right. realm. And, right? and truthfully, it's a lot of that was him kind of getting back because he he withdrew himself from the TT. He had a big crash at the Northwest 200. He withdrew from the TT and for personal reasons. And I think this this race that he died at was kind of him getting back into the saddle and getting ready to do one last Ulster where, you know, he'd show one good final result and then kind of retire. So to kind of have that happen this way with with a kid on the way and the story of his family, he, his, his brother to Michael Dunlop, who's, you know, the probably the mo- top rider in road racing right now, nephew to Joey Dunlop, who's the, you know, legend who was killed of, in an of, in a road race in Estonia, and his father would passed away in road racing as well. Robert Dunlop. So I mean, this is a family that has such a. I was going to use the word legacy, but it's not really. It's it's more it's tragic a black than that. Cloud. It's a dark cloud. It's a very storied storied family, and this is just another chapter in that. So it's uh it's a huge blow to 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 that paddock and that family, and definitely our thoughts go out to to the Dunlop family and to the Cowton family and. And we hope all the other riders involved at the Southern 100, um, you know, come come back to full health. And it's been a tough year for for road racing. We've had a lot of fatalities and a lot of death. Yeah, not good. Bum, bum deal. With that, sir, I think we are done. Yeah, right on. Good talk. I'll see you out there. Is she eating it or is she just being weird? She's just toying with it. You just got to make sure that it doesn't get too far. Sorry. Yeah. Hey, Coda Kitty. I'm just going to take this little present here. Okay. Sorry. Sorry. She's like, I need some attention. Son of a bitch. That's because it's dinner time. It's past dinner time. I need some attention. What that sounds like. (laughs) Yeah.